Well, I wanted to have, I'd ask Jen Clemens to come up and share just a short testimony with you guys. As we go through this series, um, we, we want to, um, I think what's most important is um, considering that the things, we, we sort of, we tend to underestimate how valuable one, an, active, an act of obedience is. And obedience is always by faith. So when we hear these messages, the challenge is not to forget what we've heard. And the Bible talks about that. It says a man who reads the Bible, who looks into the, into the word and sees his own, he's like a man who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. But that's, he's warning us because we're all tempted to do that, to hear a message and then go to lunch and forget you know, what we've heard. But when we practice it, when we take the things that we've heard and put it into practice, the Lord bears out the fruit. He's the one who does it. So I want to, Jen, she, she had applied one of the words in a circumstance I guess she didn't maybe expect, but, but was able to do it, and the Lord um, did something for them. So I just wanted her to share that with you guys. I'll check. Okay, so um, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, and um, Joel was talking about covering your family with the blood of Jesus. And it's one of those, I, I pray for my family consistently, you know, and I even walk around our house and I um, I pray for the Holy Spirit to fill my children and fill my husband and, and me and my home and everything. But um, never really thought about applying the blood of Jesus to anything, you know. Um, I kind of heard that in songs and stuff and never really um, understood it very well. But um, that very night um, that he had preached that sermon, um, my oldest had gone to a Bible study and he had come home and um, right about the time he got home, my six-year-old Garen woke up in a night terror. And um, he he periodically kind of does this. And so I just kind of thought, it's a nightmare, you know, or whatever. And so he was in my room and he was kind of, he was real agitated. And Aiden walked in and he was on fire. He was like telling us all about what they had learned at the Bible study. And you could not, you know, like the Lord was doing this and the Lord, you know, and he was, he was so excited. And then Garen is over here freaking out, you know. And I mean, it's one of those, usually we can wake him. He's, he's awake, but he's not awake. And he was just, he was panicking. And, um, and usually I can, can kind of distract him and, and those things, but nothing was working. And so I'm, I'm kind of listening to my son that's telling my husband, and then I'm trying to deal with this one. And finally, I was like, I'm just going to stop. And I just, I just stopped and I put my hand on his head and I started praying. Well, immediately my husband stops talking, my son stops talking, and we all just start praying. My, my son gets down on his knees and we're just praying for, eight, for a little Garen. And um, I just begin to plead the blood of Jesus over his mind and over, you know, his whole body, his emotions, whatever was coming against him and um, over his room and his bed and everything. And then I just said, if there is a spirit that is not the Holy Spirit in this room right now, leave. And he instantly was quiet and he got still and he just basically fell back asleep on our bed. And as my husband scooped him back up after we were done praying and put him back in bed, I thought I was so relieved that, number one, the night terror was done, but that that spirit was out of our house. And I had never really thought about, you know, being growing up in a Christian home, you know, and most of my family are believers. I never really thought, I know that Satan attacks us and temptations come our way and stuff, but I hadn't thought about those little souls that don't know him yet and how how the enemy is after them. And so the fact that I need to be vigilant and pick up those weapons and to pray the blood of Jesus, it was just, it was an aw- uh, awakening to me. So, 
Thank you for sharing that. <clears throat> they used to sing, you know, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. That's why songs matter, too, because they teach us doctrines of the faith. And doctrine is not ever meant to be just a piece of information. It's meant to have a practical outworking, and there is power in the blood of the Lamb. And the mind, one reason we lay hands on people's heads when we pray very often is the mind is a gate. The mind's a gateway, and you put, it's the doorpost of, the, of this house. And so you, you apply the blood of the Lamb to the doorpost of this house, and the destroyer cannot enter there. And wherever the power, whatever power is pressing in and causing trouble has to flee, not because you're powerful, but because of Jesus. And the blood of the lamb is, is, is the, it brings the authority for God to, to take the victory. And it's, it's so important for us to, to, to see these things, to hear about it too. So I want to say that, if, thank you, Jen, for sharing. She doesn't like to talk in front of people. So she's willing to do that, and I appreciate it because you all, we all benefit. But if you guys are working these things out and you're seeing your miracle, please be willing if, if you would consider sharing with the church too because we all need encouragement, and it encourages us so much to hear. Just, well, if the Lord did it for them, he's no respecter of persons. He'll do it for me. That's the, way that, that's the way that we are meant to think, and it is true. So, And if you don't like talking in front of people, write it down, and someone will read it for you, and I mean that. It's, it's most important that um, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, right? Isn't that how we overcome? So she was talking about a testimony with the blood of the lamb, or it was both in one. It was a testimony, and it was the blood of the lamb. And, and so the evil one is, is run out, and that's what we want to see more of. Amen? All right, well, let's go to the Lord together. Father, we thank you for this day. It was given to us. Every day is a gift from you. But the Lord's Day, the day we gather to worship and to pray and to, and to honor you and to be in the Word together is a special day. And to be in your presence, Lord, and to be able to bless each other and build each other up is a gift from you. And I pray that through this time, the Word of God would be a seed, you would be the sower. And I pray that the soil of our hearts, Lord, would be prepared to be good soil and that it would receive the Word of God. And that you, Lord, would, would, as it's watered and as it receives what it needs, Lord, I pray that you would give the growth, that you would be the one who causes this word to grow up in us and that we would grow up into you and that you would do all this for the glory of God and the advance of the kingdom of God in the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today, I'd like to share a word with you about a home for the lonely. And this is... this. Uh, Word in our, in our hospitality series is important. And um, we're going to be in Psalm 68, uh, the majority of the morning. We'll look at a couple of other verses and places. But Psalm 68 is really going to be the center here. And if we look at these two verses together, Psalm 68, 5 and 6. Psalm 68 is a rich psalm, the whole thing. And, um, but this is what it says in 5 and 6. It says, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. And if we just pause right there. So the fatherless have a father in God. The gift, the gift that that is in and of itself is tremendous. And it says a judge for the widows. And you remember Jesus told a parable about a woman who, who was a widow. And she's called the persistent widow. 
because she keeps going to this judge to get justice because what happens? This widow, is a, it's a woman whose husband has died, and so she's without covering and without protection in the world. So people try to take advantage of, of her, try to take money, try to seize her land, whatever they can do. People, and it's just, it's the evil of the world at work. And so she, has, she needs an advocate. Well, where is she going to get an advocate? And in, G, and in Jesus' parable, she goes to this judge, and he doesn't fear God or honor man. He doesn't care what anybody thinks, not God or, or people. He's just going to do what he wants. But because she's so persistent, he gives her what she wants. And Jesus uses that as a picture of prayer. But now consider this, because God is not an unrighteous judge. He's a righteous judge. And the Bible says right here that God is a judge for the widows. So the widow, imagine how, how persistent does the widow need to be who goes to a, to a judge who wants to help her? And that's what it's like when, the, when, when somebody in need comes to God for justice. But it says that's what God is like in his holy habitation, a father to the fatherless and a judge for widows. And this is what it says in verse 6 that pertains to us particularly. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So just in this verse, we have four different kinds of lonely people. And there's more. There's lots of ways you, can, you, could, you could be in to find yourself in a position in life where you're lonely. But in just in this, we have the orphan, we have the widow, we have the prisoner, and then we have the stubborn rebel. So there are ways that you could find yourself lonely in life. And, and loneliness, I think, it really depends on the station of life that you're in, how you view loneliness. Because there are some of you who are in a station of life where you're pleading for time alone. Could I just have a moment's peace? Could I just have some time where nobody's in my business, where nobody's calling me on the phone, where nobody, you know, and you're, or you were that you're raising little kids, whatever it is, you're in a place in life where you seem like you can't find any, any, any time to be alone. But then there are other people in, state, in a place in life where everything is just always quiet all the time. And they wish that the phone would ring. They desire somebody. They, you know, maybe they've already raised their kids and it's an empty home and maybe it's just a widow if we take that picture. And she's by herself and she's in her home and she's got nobody. She doesn't have community. Maybe she's not able to leave the house. You don't know what the circumstances are, but what, whatever the circumstances are, this person has found themselves in a lonely situation. And if you're a person whose life is full, it can sound like kind of nice, you know, to have some quiet but if you've had quiet for a very long time, you realize very quickly, it is not what God made you for. No matter what station in life you're in, God did not make us to be alone. It's like what Scott was sharing earlier about community and how people reach a place of depression and despair, and it almost can seem spiritually oppressive because it probably is. If, you, if you've allowed, because the devil isolates, you know, and we've all seen the nature video where the, where the, where the, the, the hunter, the animal, the, whatever, it's a wolf, is chasing a pack, and what they do is they, they split off. They try to split off. They go into the pack and try to split off and find one that's slower and weaker than the others. They isolate it, they surround it, and they consume it. And that's the strategy that the devil uses with us, but isolation is the first part of that strategy. I got to get you away from everybody else. That's why people will sometimes be sitting in churches and then all of a sudden something, a seed, the knot of God gets sown in their mind and they say, well, I'm never coming back to church. Where's that coming from? Is that God giving you keen discernment about blasphemy from the preacher or somebody else in the, in the church who's sitting there who doesn't like you? 
You know, is that God giving you that discernment or is that the devil trying to poison you because if he can get you out of fellowship, then you're an easy target. Then you're a ready victim. Most of the time, it's the latter. Most of the time. And so being lonely is not any, and it's not a goal to strive for. And sometimes when we're frustrated, we'll say, I wish everybody would just leave me alone. But God help you if you get your wish. Isn't that true? Because you're worn down, you're tired, you're dealing with, with people and conflicts and other things like that. But if you got your wish and you were alone, you would, you would take it all back. You would give the world away to have community and fellowship and people around you who care for you. But the thing that matters most is that what this scripture is revealing to us about the heart of God is that God, notice the language here, God takes the lonely and puts them in houses. Puts in the, another translation says, the Lord sets the lonely in families. Guess whose family that is? It's your family and it's my family. If you've got community, God wants to take the lonely and he wants to put them into a healthy community. So he's not going to take them and say, well, here's a bunch of angels. They'll hang out with you. He's not going to give, he's not going to give you heavenly community. He's going to give you community with people who have heaven in their hearts. That's what he's going to do. But God wants to do it. He wants to pluck them up out of their loneliness and put them in a place where they can have community. So however they got there to the place of loneliness, God says he'll make a home for them, or literally he will set them in families, and those families are our families. They're our families. The one we don't like is, of course, what I said earlier about the orphan, the widow. Of course, those we say, yes, God help them, let's be compassionate. But then you have the prisoner and the rebellious person. (laughs) And we say, oh, Lord, help me. And we're going to talk about those two because those two are important. I'll just mention the rebel briefly here, but you don't want, listen, loneliness because you're a stubborn person is, is, is completely avoidable. It's a loneliness that doesn't have to be. But there are people in life who just, they just, they can't have community with anybody because they're extremely stubborn and they're rebellious. And the Bible says only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. And one of the, the main things that's parched in your life is relationships. They're parched Think about how many long-term friendships does, a per- does that person have? They don't have a fringe. No, a fringe friendships don't make it 12 months with these people, 18 months. You know, the friendship's gone because the stubbornness, the rebellion, the frust- how frustrating it is to try to pursue a relationship. Nothing lasts, nothing holds. So the life is parched. But if we can humble ourselves and learn to read things like social cues. You know, there's all kinds of little pieces, you know what I mean, to, to, to learning to understand, to, to do relationships. The Bible says, if, if the King James puts it this way, if, if a man would have friends, he must show himself friendly. So he's saying, you're, what, you want friends? Be a friend. You want somebody to ask you to coffee? Ask somebody to coffee. You want somebody to take you to lunch? Ask somebody for, to lunch and pay for it. You know what I mean? If you, want to, if you want to have friends, begin to do friendly things. And, and after a while of sowing that seed, the Bible says God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That works two ways. Sinful ways, you reap what you sow. But righteous ways, you also reap what you sow. And that's the glory of God, to repay us according to our deeds. And many of those rewards we receive while we live. The word lonely, this I thought was really neat. The word lonely in Hebrew, the word yakid, that's my best shot at it. 
is translated solitary or lonely, but it also is translated only begotten and darling. So if you and I were to, um, to take the, those two things and push them together, then you really do get the greater sense of the way that God sees a lonely person. They're alone, but they've not escaped God's notice. They're precious in his sight because of their low position. And you and I could take that verse and push, it and push those, those concepts together and say, God sets his precious lonely ones in families. Only begotten, you know? That's a special phrase, isn't it? The son of God and Abraham's son Isaac are the two sons in the Bible that are called only begotten. But the preciousness of, of the solid, it's the solitariness of that life that makes it precious. In Jeremiah 49, 11, God said, and he said this to the people of Edom who were in full rebellion against God, but this is what he said. Jeremiah 49, 11, leave your orphans behind. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. God says, I, these lonely people, you're not gonna care for them. You're not gonna take care of them. God said, even among the wicked, he said, if I see orphans and widows, I'll take them up. David wrote in one place, if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. That confidence, what, what's it, what is this about God? You know, Isaiah 57, 15 gives us the heart. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I will dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So we want God to dwell with us, right? I mean, that's the, that's the great desire. What is Emmanuel? It's God with us. What did Jesus mean when he said, I'm going away, but I'm sending the helper? He's saying, God's gonna dwell with you. And we want that more than anything. Well, he said, God tells us exactly where he will dwell. He'll dwell in a high and a lofty place because he's God, but he will also come and dwell among the lowly and the contrite of heart. But he doesn't go there just, to, just because they're lowly and God says, well, I like lowly people, so I'll just come hang out with the lowly. He says he has a purpose in being with the lowly. And he says, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly. So God comes into a lowly place and he brings encouragement to the lowly. He revives their spirit, causes them to hope again and to revive the heart of the contrite. Somebody who, contrite means devastated by sadness. That's what contrite is, devastated with sadness. And God says, let me revive your heart. How does he do it? His presence comes and meets with them there. His presence comes and works in their hearts, but very often the presence of God comes through the presence of his people. A person finds out about a lonely person and says, they shouldn't be alone. That's not okay. That, and, and you know what? I've got a little room in my life. I've got a little room at my table. I've got a little room in my family. This person can be a part of our life and then they don't have to be alone anymore. God has a special affinity for the afflicted and lowly. There's different places in the Bible that we get the sense that God, God pays special attention to certain things. He pays special attention to great faith. Remember, everybody's trying to touch Jesus, but the woman with the issue of blood touches Jesus in faith. And Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? 
And this Peter said, who touched you? Everybody touched you. And Jesus said, no, seriously, who touched me? Power went out from me. Special attention to, to great faith. You want to get the attention of God, come to him in great faith. There's, so, there's different places in the Bible. It says the eyes of the Lord are roaming to and fro throughout the earth, looking that it says so that he may strongly support one whose heart is fully his. You want to get God's attention? Come to him with a, with a heart that's saying, I am completely yours. Whatever you want, it's your way. It's your way all the way. The other group or class, and there's others, that get God's attention in a special way are people who are in broken circumstances, especially when those circumstances were outside of their control. Orphans, widows, people in places of desperation where bad things happen, they're paying the price, and God says, I'm not going to leave them alone. I'm not going to leave them like that. And this is really where the church comes into play because, and this is why it matters so much that we all are seeking to be constantly led by the Holy Spirit. Because we don't want to do things as a matter of law. Because if you say, well, okay, lonely people, I'm going to go look for a lonely person. Oh, there's a lonely person. Hey, why don't you come stay at my house? You could get yourself into a world of trouble, could you not? The thing that you have to do, though, is say, Lord, show me. Is there any person who, who, who you want me to be a part of meeting their need? And then God, you're going along and God says, remember how he chose David out of all the sons? Of Levi? Not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. Well, there's nobody left. Well, we got one more. He's out in the field with the sheep. Bring him in. That's the one. So God will say, not that one, not that one, not that one, that one. So we have to be people who are listening to the Holy Spirit and saying, lead me, Lord, lead me. Because if you just respond to need, you're going to have seven people living in your house by the end of today if you go out there and try. You don't understand what I mean? You can't respond to need. Responding to need is not a strategy. You have to ask God, what do you want of me? And God will measure out to you something that you can handle. And handle in the sense that it might stretch you a little, but he'll give adequate grace and even abundant grace for you to be able to walk in that. And we'll talk about the different dynamics of this because it's not all having somebody move into your house. We can't all do that. But, there's, but there's, there are ways in which the church is called by God to minister to the lonely. <clears throat> so he has a special affinity for the afflicted and lowly. And when he sets them in our families, he comes and dwells with us. Do you want a special, an extra measure of the presence of God in your home? If he asks you to bring the lonely in, he offers you a special, in a sense, a special measure of his presence because he will come and dwell among the afflicted and the lowly, those who humble themselves and are willing to walk in God's word. But God also allows them to retain their dignity. It may be that it's best for us to care for them in their home. So this is my, this is my point in all this. We, we have to hear from the Lord. We need to really pray. And we need to seek God's wisdom to know what we should do. Because, for example, if you wanted to go to a, to a nursing home, the people there, they've got a home. That's right. It's an expensive home. <laughs> and they might be thrilled if you asked them to come live at your house. Um, but... but um, They've got a home. And so you and I could say, well, Lord, what do you want from me? And then he, you might go into the lobby of that nursing home and here are people just kind of sitting around doing nothing or doing a little something or whatever it is. And the Lord says, not that one, not that one, not that one, that one. And, and he says, build a relationship with that one person. 
Come up here. Bring them cookies or bread or flowers or whatever. Do something kind. Let them come over to your house for, for, special, for special events, for Christmas time, for Thanksgiving, whatever it is. Let them be a part of your family, whatever degree you can. You know, these are just examples, but God lets people hold on to their dignity, and that's very important. Everything that we do, if we minister to the poor, if we, to anybody who's underprivileged or underserved by society, however you want to say it, um, <clears throat> anything the church does needs to have an element of help and a way in which we intentionally help them retain their dignity. That it's not, it's not like, oh, here we come with our, with our great, a great abundance of gifts because you're so in need. Instead, it's to find out how can we really build that person up and, and let them hold on to, not pride, you understand the difference, not their pride, but their dignity, and to treat them like a human being, to treat them like you would want to be treated if you were in the same circumstances, with kindness, with humility, but with generosity. God makes a home for the lonely. So it says in, Gen- in James one twenty seven. think about how... how um, I'll just, let's just read it. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit, you see that's in their home, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What does it mean? What is God, if God says, okay, I want you guys to practice pure and undefiled religion, this is it. Take care of lonely people and stay out of sin. Take care of needy people and lonely people and stay out of sin. Do these things and you will live. Why? Because it's loving God first and it's loving your neighbor as you love yourself, which is the fulfillment of the law, is it not? So if you strip some of these things down, it becomes very simple. It's like there are certain things that the heart of God always responds to. And and a lot of us talking about these things is um, we have to break out of this gridlock of, of individuality that we have in our, in, our, in, our, in our lives, in our country, in our, in our culture. We have to break out of this gridlock because we really can get stuck, just like me and mine, us four and no more, shut the door, whatever you want to say. There's lots of things that rhyme with that. And so <clears throat> it's easy for us to do that. And you think about how inconvenient it can be sometimes to think about bringing somebody else's life into your life. It's a total disruptor. But if it's from God and he leads you to that person and that person to you, it's a blessing to them, it's a blessing to you, is it not? And so it's an act of faith too because you're not going to know until you obey. The Lord's only going to tell you so much. That's the one. That's what you get. Now take a step of faith. The per- you can say, hey, come, would you come be a part of our Thanksgiving this year or whatever it is? Um, and they say, no, I don't think so. Thanks for the offer. Well, you tried but you come back and try again. If the Lord said, that's the one, that's the one. So you come back and you try again later on. You continue to be kind, continue to show, you know, just do whatever the Lord puts on your heart to do. But to say that it's pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, I think that means we're supposed to put a pretty heavy weight on this aspect of what the church does. In so many ways, if you look look around, and Christians like to complain about social problems, we say, look at all this stuff going on in society and all this. And look at the government, how they're just shoveling out entitlements. Well, do you know why? Well, there's lots of reasons they shovel them out. But, <laughs> but outside of that, the church has ceased to care for the poor in the society. And now the problem is very big. 
Whereas if every, every, as the church grows, the care for the poor, and it's not just Christian poor, it's the poor generally. The Bible says, first care for those of the household of faith, and then with the resources you have remaining, go and care for the poor in the community and in the world. That's what the Bible says. So, but if the church continually was operating like that, then the government doesn't come in and take this role that the church was meant to play. And I don't, I'm not aware of a government program that takes care of the elderly. Is there? Is there one? I mean, maybe somebody can tell me. But even if there was, it's not like we should say, well, you should consider this government program. Would that be, would that be honoring to the Lord, right, if there was such a thing? So we want to really be willing. We have to really be willing to let our hearts be open and say, well, I can do my part in my little corner of, of the world. And if God asks me to impact one life or two lives or three lives or whatever I have capacity or room for in my life, whatever God asks of me, I can do that. You guys have heard the old adage, and I almost I hesitate to say it because it sounds like it came out of a Hallmark greeting card, but, it, but you've heard the story of the guy going down the beach, right? And he's throwing starfish back into the ocean. Lots of people have heard this, right? He's throwing starfish back into the ocean. And this other guy, because they've all washed up on the beach and they're dying in the sun, and this guy comes along and says, why are you doing that? You can look down the beach. There's millions of these things. It doesn't make any difference. You're not, gonna be, you're not making any difference at all throwing these things back in. And the guy throwing them back in picks one up and says, throws it into the ocean and says, it matters to that one. <laughs> then he picks this one up, throws it in and says, it matters to that one. And Hallmark cards aside, really great point, right? It matters to that one. And if you and I can, can, can say, well, stop thinking like, great commission, I've got to save the world. Say, what about just the one person that you're supposed to influence today or tomorrow? It matters to that one. It matters to that one. So the lonely. He also calls on us to care for prisoners, literal or figurative, people who've fallen on hard times. Hebrews 13.3 says, remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them. Do you hear that? As though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. So I want to point something out, because this, these verses are often used out of context. And the context offers us instruction, but it also offers some parameters. Um, and so this verse and others, nearly every verse in the Bible about God delivering and helping prisoners specifies that they are wrongly imprisoned. And I'm going to get to the other side of things where you're dealing with people who are rightly imprisoned. <laughs> They're imprisoned for crimes they committed. But this verse is talking about, it's talking about impri- imprisoned believers, where the government has cracked down on people because of their faith and put them in prison. That's what it's talking about. And if you read it, it says, you, you should suffer with them as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the what? in the body, meaning they're in the same body of Christ that you're in. And so these prisoners are wrongly imprisoned. So go care for them, see to all their needs, meet all their needs, and do whatever you can for them. And there's several verses. I went through, actually have studied this out, but you go through in the verses where it talks about God delivering prisoners and all this, it's prisoners of gloom, is prisoners where God says, my prisoners, in other words, people who belong to me and they're wrongly imprisoned. And so God says, just like he says with the church, first care for those who belong to the household of faith. And if they're in prison, go and meet with them there. You're part of the same body. So don't, they can't suffer and you not suffer. 
So that's, that's one side of this whole picture. <clears throat> but there's other ways in which you and I need to consider. And this, listen, I'm, guys, you understand as I go through this that I'm not laying out like every single one of you needs to go to a prison and a nursing home and you know, this afternoon. You understand that I'm putting things out there that the Bible teaches so that you can ask the Lord and say, is that for me? Is that, I'm going to make that clear because otherwise you walk out of here burdened, oh, there's 25 things I'm supposed to do and all, you know, and it's just, you just need to find out what God is asking of you and do it just to make that clear. Um, but you and I can consider visiting a believer in prison because they're in prison for their faith. Um, we, and we can also support them when they're released. And this happens in other countries quite a lot. It wouldn't be surprising if this started to happen here on a more regular basis. I mean, they were kind of on a, a crazy ride in America right now uh, with the censoring of free speech and everything else that's, that's sort of funneling into um, ultimately what will begin to restrict the gospel even to a greater degree if, the course, if we don't change course. But you think about a prisoner like a pastor coming out of a prison in North Korea and the church takes, the, takes him into their homes, cares for him, maybe has to nurse him back to health, whatever, and uh, if he doesn't have any immediate family or whatever. This is, these are the kind of things. But if you can go into a prison and visit and care for, we do those things. But there was a guy, so many of you may have heard of Chuck Colson. Anybody heard of Chuck Colson? Some of you would have, yeah. Prison Fellowship was a ministry that he started. So I actually looked up his little bio, and they had this summary. As a new Christian, so Chuck Colson was a part of the Watergate scandal. From, from way back. And he became a believer through the proceedings. Well, guess what, believer, what, guess what happens to a believer's conscience uh, when they've done wrong? Their conscience is afflicted by the Holy Spirit. And Chuck Colson found himself very inconveniently afflicted in conscience at a time he was on trial <laughs> for crimes that he had committed in the Watergate scandal. So it says, as a new Christian, Chuck Colson voluntarily pled guilty to obstruction of justice in 1974 and served seven months in Alabama's Maxwell Prison for his part in the Watergate scandal. In his best-selling memoir, Born Again, Chuck wrote, I found myself increasingly drawn to the idea that God had put me in prison for a purpose and that I should do something for those I had left behind. So Colson emerged from prison with a new mission, mobilizing the Christian church to minister to prisoners. And so this is the church being mobilized to go into the prisons and care for them, whether they're believers or not believers, whatever the situation is. And Chuck Colson's ministry, this is a large one. Prison Fellowship's a large ministry, but there's others like it. And so you and I don't have to try to reinvent the wheel because it's overwhelming. Like, what, I'm supposed to just walk into a prison and say, I want to meet with a prisoner, just pick one? <laughs> but you can partner with ministries that are already in place if this is something that God has put on your heart. But Chuck Colson said this in Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was in prison and you visited me. He calls upon his followers to minister to those who are behind bars. In other words, we will be judged in part by the way we treat those who are in prison. The fact that a man has committed a crime and is paying a price does not mean that he forfeits his God-given dignity. And I thought it was interesting he used the word dignity because that's very important to, to, to our view as a church and the way that we, we treat people that we care for. Dignity is very important. And um, so there's a place for the church in caring for prisoners. That's the point. And so you gotta, you gotta get your courage together, right? 
And if, you, if this is something that God calls you to, but then you find out that that person who's in prison is a, is a man or is a woman, just like you are a man, just like you are a woman. And you realize, but for the grace of God, I could be sitting on the other side of this glass. <clears throat> so consider visiting prisoners in prison. If they've been released, you could consider paying for a hotel room or a meal or meals after they're released. You could consider referring them for a job if it's appropriate to do so. And these are just examples. Um, you know, I'm, I just want to say this to you because this is the whole thing about wisdom and faith, that they're often pitted against each other, but really they, want, they work in tandem. You need to obey the Lord and you need to observe practical wisdom. If you have a bunch of little kids, you're not going to take a newly released felon into your house. Does that, does that make sense? The Lord, and I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not telling you to disobey the Lord. I'm just saying there are situations where it is simply on all counts of practical wisdom, not a good idea to do certain things. So you don't ever want to have what the Bible calls zeal without knowledge. Paul accused the Jews of having zeal without knowledge. And he said it led them to crucify Jesus. So that's kind of a big deal, right? You've got all this religious zeal, but without the right pieces of information and practical wisdom, you end up making, leading you to a conclusion that can be very harmful. So this is my way of saying, do what God leads you to do, but seek counsel, search the scriptures, have other people pray for you, and really make sure that a decision you make is good and that it's sound before you do it. Because your first obligation, if you have a family, is to make sure that that family is safe to protect them. And I'm talking about as the protector and a keeper of a household, you've got to keep your family safe first. And if the family can be safe and you can minister to somebody, then you do both. Does this make sense? So that might sound, to a zealous person, that would sound like, well, where's your faith, brother? And um, we just, we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world where atrocities take place every day, and we do not need to walk foolishly into the lion's den. If you get thrown there, you deal with it. But I'm not going to go wandering into the, fool, into the lion's den by faith and then tell God what he has to do. Right. Now, you have to shut the lion's mouth. I brought him into my house. That's not how it works. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, good. That's all. That's all I want to say about that. Faith and wisdom are a holy conglomerate, a cooperative don't neglect one or the other. But it says in Psalm 68, 6, we read this, God makes a home for the lonely. What does he do? He leads the prisoners into prosperity. It's the heart of God for somebody released from prison. Not that it be the end of their life. What's he want for them? He wants them to go on to prosperity. Much of that will happen through the aid and the counsel and the help and the prayers of the church. That we take these people up and where they can't fly, we give them wings. Because, they, because we do believe in redemption, or else what are we here for? But it does say only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So we check the heart always, but we want to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. So this is also very applicable to a figurative prisoner, those who have fallen on hard times because of finances and circumstances. In Proverbs 22, 7, it says, The rich rules over the poor, and we might know this verse, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. It's a kind of imprisonment. So there are people who have gotten themselves into financial situations, bad business deals. Maybe they did something illegal. Maybe that's why they're in jail. You never know what the circumstances are, but people can often find themselves with a, with a life that's been completely wrecked through financial decisions. 
And that's just one example of what you might consider a figurative prisoner, but that a person whose life has led to a great isolation. You know, people are very embarrassed about bad financial decisions. They feel stupid. They feel really dumb. They, hindsight's twenty twenty. They can see, I never should have done that. I had every chance to turn back, and I did it anyway in here. Now I'm in this total mess, and it's going to take me five years to fix my credit, and there's all this stuff that goes through people's minds. And so they end up, in some cases, kind of isolating themselves. But my point is that however a person got to a place of isolation, the church, one role that the church plays in people's lives is to pull them out of that isolated place and say, there's hope in Jesus. There's redemption in Christ. There's a new start for you. Put your hope in God. Nothing's impossible with God. And let the Lord begin to work in that life. Listen to what it goes on to say in Psalm 68, verse 9. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. So God spoke a word over his inheritance and said, yep, that's it. And they looked at it and they said, this parched land? And the Lord said, yep, that's it. That's the land. That's the land that you're going to get, this parched land right here. But it says, what did God do? He shed abroad a plentiful rain. So he declared that it was his while it was parched, and then then he gave the rain. And that's a picture of a person who's starting over. That's a picture of a new life. God says, yep, that one's mine. You say, that parched parched land right there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then as you move into what the word of God, on the word of God, you move into the, the claiming of that inheritance, so to speak, then the rain starts to come the watering of the ground, and then the life begins to be productive, and then the person gets a job, and then the new beginning starts to take, really starts to take form. And you can look at this and go, man, isn't God incredible? You know, I, I might have sown and somebody else might have watered it, but God gave the growth. You know, he gets all the praise. It says in verse 10, your creatures settled in it. They came in and settled in that land that had been parched. You provided in your goodness for who? For the poor, O God. So this is the heart of God. That however people got to their particular place, um, the Lord is ready to bring them out. So the last class that I want to cover in this from the same psalm of lonely people that this passage addresses, I would say, and we're going to see it here in verses 11 through 14, are the military wife the homemaker, and the mother. And this is so amazing that this is what I was preaching on. It happens to be Mother's Day. They look at the Lord, the Lord's goodness here. But I want you to see this picture because I think this, is, this passage is very often, it seems like sort of flowery, poetic language, but it doesn't seem to make much sense. But what I want to show you is that it actually makes quite a lot of sense. And if we read through it, it's a beautiful picture. Verse 11, the Lord gives the command, The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. And what's the good news that they're proclaiming? And here it is, verse 12. Kings of armies flee, they flee. And what does she say? She who remains at home will divide the spoil. So the army has won the victory. And all these, the women, it says, are a great host who are proclaiming and say, the victory has been won. The kings are running away and all the men, the warriors are coming home. And it says, when, this is the verse where I think it gets sort of confusing, but if you read it, it really does make sense. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing 
and Zalman. So here's the picture. The warriors are coming back from the war. It says it was snowing. He goes, the warrior comes home and he opens the door of the house and he looks around and he's like, well, where's my wife? She's not here. He shuts the door and this is me. I'm giving a little po- 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 poetic picturing so you can try to capture the essence of this. But so then, he, so then he goes out to the pasture and there all the sheep are bedded down for the night and everything's covered with snow. And here in the middle of the sheep is this shape, kind of like a wing. And it's actually his wife. It's actually this woman who has, she has actually laid down and covered herself up, sleeping with the sheep, keeping the sheep safe from harm. And she's covered in snow. And it's this incredible picture because it says, she who remains at home will divide the spoil. And this is the picture of what the women in our lives who, they who give up everything and stay behind and they're not in the battle. This is the picture of their faithfulness. He comes home and he says, where do you find a woman like this? Where do you find somebody with this kind of character? Look at this. She's laying down on a snowy night with the sheep to make sure that the sheep are well cared for. There's no one so faithful as this woman. The war is over and she's remained at home tending the sheep. And this is the picture for us. While you are off to war or work, she did all these things alone and she's worthy of her share of the spoil. And I think one place that that men tend to fail in terms of keeping relationships healthy with our wives and even considering our mothers is that we fail to recognize because we weren't there to see it the intensity of the sacrifice. And that's one of the big revelations that God gives. You know, unfortunately, I have to say that as a young man, I didn't appreciate my mother until I grew up. And then I realized what my mom had done and all the sacrifices she had made to keep us boys, four boys, all of us bad, <laughs> to, keep us, to keep us all, you know, moving on some kind of a good track, you know what I mean, fed and clothed and all these things. And even as a husband and having kids, you know, you think, well, well you know, this is, you, ought to, you ought to be able to recognize the sacrifice, and yet it escapes you for, for so much of especially early life. And then one day the Lord opens your eyes. You come home, and it's like this picture. You come home from work, and maybe it was late. Maybe you had a meeting or whatever it was, and you come in, and it's late. And you come into the house, and the evidence of the struggle is everywhere. You're not sure, were we robbed or, you know, oh, okay, no, it's just the kids, you know, and you're looking around and there's just evidence of the struggle and there on the couch, there she is, like, like among the sheepfolds, she's crashed out, there's laundry, there's things, she's definitely covered with something, it's not snow, and she's there and she's just, and, and you look at it and I think so many men, they, they go, look at this mess and they get totally pulled into this whole thing of like, why is all this, why is, why is everything not in order? until God changes our heart, until God opens our eyes. And we see this is all around her. She is surrounded with the evidence of her faithfulness, that she has kept things up and moving, that things have, everybody's alive. You know, everybody's taken care of. And all this that we think is a mess is actually the evidence of her, of her struggle to keep everything online because she was doing it by herself. And so they're worthy of honor, are they not brothers? She's worthy of her share of the spoil. She kept the house and the kids. As I said, she's definitely covered with something. The evidence of her sacrifice is everywhere. 
So the question I want to ask you is like this man coming home from the war who, who sees her laying among the sheep like a wing in the middle of all these little puffs of sheep, this glistening wing. Can you see the beauty in her faithfulness? And if you can, I want to say, give her the product of her hands. That's what it says in Proverbs 31. And let her works praise her in the gate. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up together. Let's stand up together. If you've got a, a wife or a mother like that, then I want to say this is, this is a good day. I want you to make sure you set apart some time to honor her and let her know that she means so much to you and that her sacrifice, that you saw it and that the Lord saw it and that it's not missed and it's not forgotten. But I want you to consider also, as I said, the loneliness of, of, of having a hard struggle that you have to work through a lot of it by yourself. And it has an impact. And I want to say to the men in the room too, that our, a big part of our role is to, is to, as the scripture says, to give them a home. That's what God says that we're supposed to do. Give her what she needs to do what she's got to do. You know what I mean? We build a home for them and we, and we provide whatever we can. And the Lord honors that and he respects that. The Lord, well, I should say he returns. He returns to us as we seek to obey his word. But as we go through this, um, and even in looking all this, these things together today, we have to ask the Lord to open our hearts to be willing to open our homes and open our lives to, uh, to people who are in desperate need, people who don't have community like we have it, people who are alone, who have a, people who have either isolation that's left them alone or they've got so much to do, they just don't have time for relationships. But whatever the case is, we have to really be, have our eyes opened and be willing to reach out into those people's lives and say, what about you come and join us for dinner? What about you come be a part of this? What about you come to this? We're going to do this. Would you like to come with us? It's just opening up your life. And when we do that, it's the heart of God. It's the very heart of God. Pure and undefiled religion is this. To care for the orphans and widows, to visit them in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we open our hearts to you now. And in Jesus' name, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. Show us, Lord, if we're already walking on the path that you want us to walk and there's already these things happening and materializing in our daily life, then I pray that you would just continue to pour grace into those relationships that we're trying to, to build and develop now. But Lord, if there's a gap, if there's a space in our life that's meant to be filled with a lonely person, then I pray in Jesus' name you would open our eyes, that you would lead us. Lord, lead us even beyond our expectation, things we haven't expected, that we would just suddenly see somebody and you'd say, that's the one. And that we would open up our lives, God, and be willing to give, to give a community and to give family and to give a home to people who are in need, Lord, and who are so desperate. And I pray, God, you would meet us there, and that there'd be opportunities for the gospel. Lord, would there be opportunities for encouragement and nurturing and for care? And that you yourself, Lord, as your scripture says, would come and dwell with us among the lowly, Lord, and the brokenhearted. And we pray, and we're depending, Lord, on your spirit to be the one who revives the spirits of the lowly and gives them hope and purpose, Lord, where they've lost sight. We ask these things, Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit, through the blood.